Hey, it's Katie Kramer, your Squawk Pod host. Before we start today's episode, I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Whether you've been loyal since our launch in 2019 or you're a little newer, we appreciate every one of you. And we love presenting you with the best of CNBC's coverage every day. Our work would not be possible without your support. So please help us help you. Take a second right now, click that follow button wherever you're listening, and give us a rating while you're at it. A couple of stars. Remember, you can also share any of our episodes at any time on Twitter, LinkedIn, your personal newsletter, a text, whatever. Help us spread the CNBC word. That's it. Thanks, everybody. Now, let's get to the podcast. Bring in show music, please. Today on Squawk Pod. The U.S. and China tense but tethered whether we like it or not. Fresh off his trip to China, New York Times columnist Tom Friedman. It's really the U.S. and China that became the real one country, two systems, not China and Hong Kong. And we are deeply integrated. Debt ceiling tensions, high and getting higher. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. Even the flirtation with a default is going to hurt everyday Americans. It risks raising car payments. It risks raising uh, home mortgage payments. It risks raising student loan debt payments. Plus, getting paid to do nothing. Florida's Governor DeSantis takes on Disney again. And Apple bets big on India. CNBC tech reporter Steve Kovac. If they're opening two retail stores within 48 hours of each other, they see data that the Indian consumer is ready to afford Apple products. It is Tuesday, April 18th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, saying that House Republicans plan to pass legislation raising the debt ceiling and curbing federal spending. In a speech yesterday at the New York Stock Exchange, Speaker McCarthy outlined the GOP's demands for agreeing to a debt limit increase, including uh, limits on federal spending, clawing back some COVID aid, and requiring Americans um, to work to receive federal benefits. And here's what the speaker said about negotiating with President Biden. When I walked with him and sat with him, I said, look, we couldn't negotiate and there's parameters. Let me be very clear. There's two things I will not do. I will not raise taxes and I, I will not pass a clean debt ceiling. It just won't pass. And it's, it's kind of interesting because we're going to see whether I'm not sure whether he's talking to the other side or the other side, Uh, and I mean his own party, because the the more conservative members want a lot more than that. Moderates don't. He needs exactly, probably 218 needs total solidarity, because he's not going to get any, or whatever, 200, whatever he has. He's not going to get any Democrats. Well, no, the two sides are not in alignment at this point. They're not. But it's... It's, I, we, I see a path, and that is if McCarthy can pass something, then you send it to the Senate. The Senate totally changes it and, you know, leaves something so that both sides can claim victory, and then, then we I, pass it. But I do think McCarthy's yeah. going to have an issue passing something. Right, because with his other guy. party, right. like it's, it's going to be something complicated to get his and whether own caucus to sign up. And solidarity. Something anywhere. Yeah, right. he's got, he's yeah. got, you know, it's he's got it easy. coming from all sides. Right. His own side and, and the other side. But, uh, you know, he's... Washington Post, plans that, yeah, same, that's right there. Fights loom, United Front, that's everywhere this morning. But, you know, there's not a lot of time 
last There's not. Time. I remember in January. Remember, we, I think we were talking about it right around the time of the inauguration. And they we said, were saying, oh, this is such a long way off. I don't know why we're worried. Here we are months later right. and nothing. May or June, right? May or June, depending on what the tax receipts look like this week, um, what you start seeing with people paying things in. Maybe they can stretch it a little longer. Maybe. Meantime, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis stepping up his fight against Disney. At a news conference yesterday, he announced new legislation that aims to override the company's recent effort to sidestep the state's oversight of its theme parks. The governor also suggested taking punitive action against Disney, including reappraising the value of Disney World for property tax levies. He also speculated with a smile about other uses for land in that district, including a state-run theme park or this. Someone even said, like, maybe you need another state prison. Who knows? Disney CEO Bob Iger has said that future investment in Disney World could be at risk if the governor continued to use Disney as a political punching bag. It, it's kind of hard to imagine at this point. This is the largest employer in the state. I think Disney World is somehow responsible for about one out of every 50 jobs in the state. Mm -hmm. And does the rhetoric at this point is that. Does this poll well in Florida? Does it poll well nationally? And, that, and then he's using it because he thinks it's going to help him become the president? He does what it. he wants. Uh, no, I know he does what he wants, but at some point he his, his in, in You saw in battleground states that he's up on Biden, Trump's underwater on Biden in every one. But DeSantis can't win the nomination. So what is he doing? He's doing what he thinks he wants to do. I mean, when he was doing the COVID stuff, if he didn't fold then, he's not going to fold on this. He does. Uh, he's young. He, he maybe he hasn't learned. I don't know. Maybe he's still idealistic and thinks I'm going to do what I want to do. And I, I feel strongly about this. For whatever reason, he's, uh, I don't think he puts his finger in the air, looks at him, puts it in the air as much as, uh, you know, depending on where you, s you sit on all these things, some people think that's a real attribute. There are some people that think it's like, he's like the greatest governor ever because of that. Other people think this guy is like Trump on steroids. It, it, I mean, it's one thing to stand your ground. It's another thing to be vindictive in a way that could potentially be yeah, there's a vind You know, I, I, there's plenty of vindictivity to go around. <laughs> Is that a word? I, I just never know if it's a good look, being vindictive. It's one thing to be firm. I, I think right. that looks good. It's another thing to look like you're vindictive. Consulting giant McKinsey and Bain now reportedly delaying the start dates for new MBA hires. The Wall Street Journal is saying the firms are even paying them thousands of dollars effectively not to start or to push off their start date. Bain telling MBAs with offer letters that if they wanted to start into, or if they waited, rather, I should say, to start until 2024, the firm would pay them $40,000 to work for a nonprofit or $30,000 to learn a new language or participate in an educational program. There were also suggestions to Bain's new hires to become yoga instructors or go on a safari. They'll pay you $20,000 for that. At McKinsey, many MBA hires don't have start dates yet, but are expected uh, to be brought in uh, in a series of months, but uh, shortly after graduation through February 24. I think 40 grand to learn a language, or 30 grand to learn, or going to safari, I, I could uh, maybe get behind that. No, this the, could the, be a little bit of a. Is, some of them make about $175,000. Excuse me? You thinking English? Yeah. $175,000 for starting salary for some right. of them if you're coming out of the top schools. Yep. If you wait a year to put that off, if you've got student loans you're paying off, sure, if you're I, looking for an apartment, like it's one thing if you can go home to mommy and daddy and, and stay there and not worry about. Well, the if money. you're on safari, you don't need you don't you know you don't need to rent a house. So. Still got to pay the student loans if you have them. 
in a tough economy, uh, I don't know about consulting firms. You know, I mean. They're some of the highest paid jobs. They're I know, I know. I actually people want to go. Forget about tough, I've got it. I don't Forget about I'm tough by. economy. I actually think that the, in an in a AI economy, we'll probably talk about Elon Musk's interview right. maybe a little bit later. They come you up know, with. You start to think about what the AI can actually do relative to the consultant. The best today. things they come up with are those two letter words that, that have never been put together that subtly describe everything in business. I don't know. They came up with thought leader, I think. All those really good. There used to be a whole list of McKinsey, like two word yeah. terms. That, and that's the old joke. You know what a consultant is? Uh, Somebody from out of town who doesn't have a job. Right. And tells you, you no longer have a job either. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, then he breaks the news to you. I just remember certain McKinsey consultants that have taken over major corporations. I guess Gerstner worked, okay, but then there was the Delta guy that did not work. I'm not going to mention any names at CNBC, but I, we had an experience there over the years. Part of the problem is that technology companies are laying off, and that's another place right. where you see a lot of MBAs going. So suddenly it looked like a great idea to go into business school, get an MBA. Now there are concerns about what so happens when you come out. What's the cost to bring McKinsey in to streamline things? I mean, in a bad economy, you definitely aren't bringing a bunch of consultants. No, in, right? no, because you're laying off people left and right. Yeah, and that's what the consulting companies are realizing well, then, that they are but, overstaffed in some areas, and that's right. what this is a result of. Apple's looking for a new generation of iPhone users, opening its first store in India overnight. CEO Tim Cook was at the store in Mumbai to welcome the first customer. Steve Kovac uh, joins us now uh, with more. Hey, Steve. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. Yeah. So this is the first retail store. There's another one opening up in Delhi on, I guess, Thursday it's going to be. And this is part of a huge tour Tim Cook is doing across India. He's going to meet with Prime Minister Modi tomorrow to talk about manufacturing. And a lot of people may be saying, okay, why is he going in India? And I would say, where else is he going to go? Look at, look, look at what India has to offer him. It has one, over 1 billion uh, potential customers. And also, as he learned last year, China is not a great place to put all your manufacturing eggs. You can't put it all in that one basket. And this is why we're seeing so much expansion on the supply so this, chain side there. Is this there. store as much about the supply chain longer term in terms of ingratiating the company a, a little with, the, bit. with the country? Or is this about a new push to believe that this is the, the, the new best and biggest retail market that has been untapped? By the way, you and I have talked for years just about the, the margin right. on those phones and what kind of phones work there, right. and what kind of phone, when I say work, I mean, what kind of phones sell well in, uh, in India relative to other and places And it's not a $1,000 iPhones, exactly. it's $100 Android phones. Right. But what this tells me is, if they're opening two retail stores within 48 hours of each other, they see data that the Indian consumer is ready to afford Apple products. And there's a lot of interesting movement happening culturally, especially on the young side, where you're seeing a rise in TikTok, or they don't want TikTok in the country, but Reels and YouTube Shorts influencers. People want these devices. So you have that, the consumer track, and Andrew. And more, more people than China. More over, what is it, 1.2, 1.3 billion? Four. Something it like just that. Ha it just, it's happening this year, so, people don't And really that's a labor force. So on the other hand, you have a potential middle to upper middle class that's growing, like we saw in China you know, 10, 15 years ago. On the other hand, you have this labor force that can actually build the devices like we saw in China and still see in China. And at the same time, you have the Indian government 
you know, Modi's meeting with him right. tomorrow to kind of court them. They want more of those job creation in the country. They only have 3 to 4% market share right. in, in India, but it's still been billions of dollars. With no retail presence. In the last 12 months. Exactly. Anyway, if that tells you anything about what goes on there. And we've talked for years about how there are more toilet, more fo- cell phones than toilets. Yeah. Like everybody has access to their own cell phone. Not everybody has access to their own toilet. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it, part of that is you want to go what Google did in the country. The reason why Google has such strong market share, Sundar Pichai, who at the time was in charge of Android and then became CEO of Google, one of his big initiatives was, hey, let's make really cheap Android phones and get into this market and just dominate the market share there. Think, Apple can't do that. Yeah, I was going to say, you think Apple will offer Absolutely, it's going to be the same price. Okay. That's 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 the point. But they clearly see that the consumer is at least ready, especially in these big right. financial and cultural centers. They can't they can't offer their phone at any lower price in India. Because, no, because there's a worry about an, uh, an arbitrage that would take place, or because. What? Well, it's also more expensive in India right. too. It's so it's 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 a whole bunch of different calculations going on. But you got to also keep in mind in the United States we're pretty unique in the way we buy and sell phones because the carriers can effectively give it to you for free. You can walk into a Verizon right. or a T-Mobile, they'll give you it for free as long as you agree to be a Verizon customer for a couple years. They don't really have that in India or any other market where Apple operates. Right. So people buy the they also need to start talking about things like payment plans which we have where you effectively lease the phone. Right. So that's more possible now and until now the retail presence for apple products has been resellers like you know just mom and pop electronic stores reselling apple devices whether refurbished or new or just the apple online store and now they have this footprint there i mean you see the crowds people are right. lining up for these things fascinating steve thank you thanks cheese will be next Coming up on Squawk Pod, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries and his side of the aisle's debt ceiling negotiation. All we're asking extreme mega Republicans in the House right now is not to hold the economy hostage, but to be responsible. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Joe. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy pledging a vote to raise the debt ceiling for one year uh, with some other things attached, well, cutting the federal uh, budget. And we spoke to House Financial Services Committee Chairman Patrick McHenry about the chances of this passing. What we're going to do is pass a debt ceiling increase uh, since the administration is unwilling to negotiate. And we're going to have commensurate spending cuts and regulatory changes that are going to help grow our economy. That package, the House Republicans will pass uh, within the next two, three weeks. Our next guest says he's looking to work uh, with Republicans to come to a uh, resolution. Joining us now, House Democratic Leader uh, Hakeem Jeffries, New York uh, Congressman. Leader Jeffries, it's great to have you on uh, once again. Good morning. Great to be back. these are some of the same players from uh, when you got all those votes. I, you know, I would, what, if I were you, I'd add up all those to 15 times a majority. You, you had like thousands <laughs> of votes when it finally came down. That would be correct, right? yeah. Yeah. So we saw. Apparently, apparently 3,000. Yeah. You want to say apparently 3,179 votes, but who's counting? Oh, my. <laughs> you had the number ready to go. That's perfect. So we know uh, that Speaker McCarthy and. and um, Congressman McHenry, hope springs eternal uh, for, for getting votes, but we can see that there are sometimes uh, votes that you're counting that might not be there when, when you need them. Do you have confidence in, in what uh, 
Congressman Kennedy just said. You think they can pass something in the next couple of weeks? Well, that remains to be seen. Right now, all we have is a speech and talking points, but we haven't seen a legislative proposal. The first thing that we need to do is to make sure that we cleanly raise the debt ceiling to avoid a default on our nation's debt for the first time in our history. It would have catastrophic consequences. Even the flirtation with a default is going to hurt everyday Americans. It risks raising car payments. It risks raising uh, home mortgage payments. It risks raising student loan debt payments. It will hurt everyday Americans uh, and crash our economy at a very fragile time, particularly in the immediate aftermath uh, of the regional banking crisis. We will have a conversation about the types of future investments that we should be making in the health, the safety, and the economic well-being of the American people, but it should be done through a budget process and through the appropriations process, not in a hostage-taking situation. Right, but we know that there are some issues uh, in terms of, of where the debt is, and it, it, you've got one side that is definitely taking this position. You, you've seen that they are, and, and you just uh, outline what, what your position is with the clean debt rate. So we know that we're here, and you say you do want to negotiate. Um, here's a quote just out of a, an op-ed today. The speaker's requests are hardly radical, uh, just returning to the federal government, uh, the spending levels of the bad old days, fiscal 2022. These are reasonable limits, the 1% annually over 10 years, um, and reasonable limits, and that a reasonable negotiation, which is what Speaker McCarthy is asking for, is not outlandish with, with uh, President Biden. It wouldn't be crazy just to talk, just to see if there's something we can do for both parties, for the United States, for, for the American people, to try to, to talk about how to do this, when one side is definitely wants to do it that way. Uh, Leader? Well, here's what we're dealing with. Uh, I think Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump, in 2019, Paul Ryan, the former Speaker of the House, have all made clear that when it comes to raising the debt ceiling, we shouldn't have partisanship, we shouldn't have showmanship, we shouldn't have gamesmanship, because the debt ceiling uh, is not a forward-looking vehicle. It has nothing to do with authorizing spending into the future. The debt ceiling relates to paying bills that the Congress has already incurred. Uh, that is why the full faith and credit of the United States is at risk because of the threatening of a default. Separate and apart from the debt ceiling, uh, which should be cleanly raised, we did it three times without fanfare during the Trump administration, and House Democrats helped to do that each and every time uh, without engaging in a hostage-taking situation, though we may have disagreed with some of President Trump's spending priorities. Certainly we did. Uh, fiercely disagree uh, with some of his tax policies, which exploded the deficit and didn't benefit everyday Americans. But on the debt ceiling, we recognized that we needed to be responsible. And all we're asking extreme MAGA Republicans in the House right now is not to hold the economy hostage, but to be responsible. We can have a discussion about the budget. There's a process for that. President Biden released his budget. The House Republican budget is still in the witness protection program, Joe. Unfortunately, it's hiding. It's missing in action. No one has seen it. It's not on the House floor. It hasn't even been introduced. Uh, but we can have that discussion once the Republicans are willing to show the American people their plan. 
I guess uh, leadership on both sides has members that, that they need to, uh, to try to satisfy uh, for them to, to move forward. So we know that, that Speaker McCarthy is, is going to try to introduce this bill. If there is a bill and if they do manage to get uh, a majority, they need, I guess, almost, nearly every Republican to vote for it. And there's a couple of things in there that they send over uh, to the Senate, but an offer to raise the debt limit for a year. Um, would you at that point think that the Senate, if the Senate changes a few things, is there anything that could come back that, that uh, Speaker McCarthy wants that you'd be okay with? Just any, whether it's the COVID re uh, relief funds that, are, that haven't been spent or, I mean, anything there where both sides can say we got something out of this or, or it's just clean debt ceiling or nothing. Because if it goes that way, you can maybe push the Republicans to that brinkmanship, but that's not good for anyone. Well. We're in total agreement with President Reagan's position, with Donald Trump's position and Paul Ryan's position that there should be no brinksmanship when it relates to the debt ceiling. Now, some of the things that uh, the Republican majority is demanding that all of us pass in order to raise the debt ceiling for a year and then be back at this gamesmanship uh, in April or May of next year, which makes no sense. Uh, we need certainty in the economy so people can function, so industry can function, so business leaders can make decisions uh, outside of the context of the hostage-taking situation. So even the offer to raise the debt ceiling for a year, I think, is irresponsible. But separate and apart from that, some of the things that are being attached, for instance, are that we pass uh, the so-called H.R. 1 Republican bill, which is a partisan bill that puts polluters over people. That makes no sense. That's a legislative item uh, and there's a legislative process to have a discussion about what is the right thing to do for the American people. We certainly shouldn't entertain cuts to Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and veterans benefits and things of this nature that some of the extreme MAGA Republicans in the House majority would like to do and are demanding be done in order to pass a debt ceiling. That is all irresponsible. Uh, and I think that the right thing to do is for us to make sure we protect the full faith and credit of the United States of America, particularly during a fragile time for our economy. Right. But there, there are times where, I mean, some of these things, I, I think that almost anyone on either side of the aisle would say, yeah, I, I can live with that. And if it gives, gives us the opportunity to, you know, just by accident, actually do something good in the debt ceiling negotiation, I don't know why you can't at least maybe President Biden should show the leadership to just enter into negotiations, as he said he would 75 days ago and hasn't. Well, well President Biden has shown extraordinary leadership. He produced a budget. He produced a budget over a year it ago. It's wasn't in the public a serious domain. The American was, people can evaluate it. It wasn't no, a serious budget. No, no, Joe, it's a, no, no, Joe it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a serious budget that will do several things. One, it will protect and strengthen Social Security and Medicare. The American people care about that issue. That's a serious proposal. It will invest in building an economy that works for everyday Americans from the middle out and the ground up, continue to drive down costs for the not American gonna, people, it's not protect go Social Security. That, that's and, all I meant. It, it and, doesn't and, have a chance and, and, of passing but, the House. That's, that's the thing. I, I, well, listen, no, no, it, it, it's, it's our responsibility to present our ideas to the American people so we can have a serious discussion. President Biden's budget also reduces the deficit by over $3 trillion. With, with, with we a lot don't of different have tax a Republican increases. budget to right. even have a conversation about, right. Joe, and that's the problem.
Well, that's the, that's the two sides. That's in a nutshell. I mean, there's a lot of tax increases that aren't going to fly with, with Republicans. I don't see how, when both sides are so intractable uh, and entrenched, that it just, you know, we're out here just thinking, how is this ever going to uh, going to fix itself. But Congressman, we always uh, appreciate having you on uh, Squawk Box uh, to, to have these discussions. I think we make some progress occasionally. It's grindingly, but uh, but we do. But we appreciate it today. We're going to uh, work. Leader. We're going to work it out. We're going to work it out. Joe. I think thank I you. hope so. I think so. Just like we just said. All right. Thank you. Up next on Squawk Pod, the tale of two countries, the U.S. and China, in a push-pull, the technology, the supply chain, and the politics, with New York Times foreign affairs columnist Tom Friedman. Okay, we're moving the supply chain, say, to Vietnam or uh, to Malaysia. What you discover is that you've moved your factory maybe out of China, but the whole supply chain for that factory is still in China. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Stand by, Joe. His mic. Q. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Some news uh, out of Asia overnight. China's GDP grew by 4.5% in the first quarter, beating estimates of 4%, and that's the fastest pace since the first quarter of last year. Retail sales jumped 10.6% in March as uh, online sales of physical goods picked up. Industrial output rose 3.9%, just shy of economists' forecast of 4%. Goldman Sachs' top China economist told CNBC earlier today that the new numbers support the firm's full-year outlook for the Chinese economy to grow 6% this year. Joining us right now is New York Times foreign affairs columnist Tom Friedman. His latest piece is called America, China, and a Crisis of Trust, and it recounts his recent reporting trip to China and Taiwan. And Tom, welcome. What did you learn on your travels? Oh, so many things, Becky, but I think the most important one is um, why trust, I mean, trust always matters, but why it matters more now than ever in terms of U.S.-China relations. Um, And that is because uh, basically so many things that we now exchange are dual use. Um, In the Cold War, we we understood an uh, F-15 was dual use, it was a military uh, device and and a phone was a civilian device. And now basically that everything is connected uh, and digital uh, and spins off data. Um, it can be have a military application or a civilian application. Uh, there's a few lines of code difference between an autonomous car and an autonomous weapon. Well, as we trade, sell, buy those kinds of goods and services with China, and you see this in the TikTok story most prominently, um, trust matters more than ever because uh, uh, you really have to hope the people who are exchanging those products share the same values you do. And if they don't, you're going to have a problem. And I think this is one of the the deep underlying reasons for the breakdown uh, politically between the U.S. and China now um, and the kind of trade war we're going into. You know, I I would argue that trust is not running high, you know, running incredibly low at this point. There are a lot of good reasons for that. If you look through some of the issues that have led up to that trust deficit. Well, you know, I think the the biggest thing that you you if you look at us china relations um uh there's just no question becky that uh, china took a u-turn um uh you know in the last decade uh it wasn't like they were heading to be a democracy but there was a sense uh, i think if you talk to business people doing you know who dealt with china for a long time that the country was moving toward you know a little more openness a little more transparency um, and even a little more freedom of press. And that was aborted, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, and there's been a real U-turn as a result. 
And um, because of that, uh, you know, that 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 kind of breakdown in in a sense of, or trust of where they were going, it's really been reflected in the breakdown in relations. Now, the Chinese would tell you from their side that um, uh, what they feel is that the U.S. government um, is more dedicated than ever to the toppling of the Communist Party. And, um, uh, you know, th that's their big issue. So um, but there, there's no question in my mind that China has uh, taken a U-turn and um, it's affected their relations all over the globe. I mean, what we're seeing, we were talking earlier today about Tim Cook being in India, opening the first couple retail stores there. The big movement they've been making um, in terms of just supplying, um, the supply chain being moved to India from China in some ways, too. How, how does this play out over years? There's, it just seems American business is, is being forced to look at other ways to diversify the supply chain, whether that be from lessons learned during the pandemic and being too reliant on one, company, on one country, or whether that just be pressure from Washington to do just that. Well, you know, the supply chain issue is really complex because uh, last year the U.S. and China had a record uh, level of trade exchange. Now, three quarters of that basically was U.S imports of manufactured goods from China. And the other quarter, a lot of it was actually Chinese imports of American agricultural products. It is not easy to replace the China supply chain. Because also, uh, you only have to ask Tim Cook, it isn't just one company, it's just one factor they have, hey, we make Apple phones here. They have a network of suppliers there uh, that, that are embedded in that ecosystem. The other thing, and um, uh, James Crabtree pointed this out in, in a piece the other day um, from Singapore, is that, okay, we're moving the supply chain, say, to Vietnam um, or uh, to Malaysia. But what you discover is that you've moved your factory maybe out of China to Vietnam or Malaysia, but the whole supply chain for that factory is still in China. Um, and until we have the kind of manufacturing base that we can stand um, uh, up on our own with, you know, it's not so easy to move these things around. And even when you move them, you discover that the second and third order supplies are actually still coming from China. Hey, Tom, maybe you can explain this, given that you were there. I believe Tim Cook was there uh, where you were during this period. Can you speak to just the both the body language, the way these relationships are manifesting themselves? Because here in Tim Cook, you have a situation where he wants to diversify and, and put some of his business outside of China at the same time that he needs China in that moment as well. You have the U.S. Uh, politicians obviously screaming about China and what that relationship therefore looks like in a, in a, in a place in a country where um, trust and even discretion in terms of how you speak and what you say matters so much. Well, I, I wouldn't want to speak for Tim. We were at the same uh, China Development Forum, but um, I think, you know, Andrew, everyone's just really having a difficult time negotiating all of this right now. Um, there's, there's, you know, I've said for a long time that it's really the U.S. and China that became the real one country, two systems, not not the U.S., not not China and Hong Kong. Um, and, and we are deeply integrated, whether it's the 300,000 Chinese students here um, or the thousands of American companies and supply chains out of China. And to me, we, we, are, we are doomed to compete, um, but we are doomed to collaborate and we're doomed to find some balance between the two. Uh, otherwise, I think it's going to not only affect our, our thriving as a country, but, but theirs as well. You know, what, what concerns me is that we've sort of started to become more like them with industrial policy. Our industrial policy, Andrew, it used to be called the Statue of Liberty. Um, open our borders, bring the most energetic and high IQ risk takers to this country, um, give them American rule of law and presto, um, you, you got companies. 
And we are becoming more like them with industrial policy. And that's actually making them more like, like them. Um, and so that that's certainly one of the concerns I have. I, I, I you know, would not want to be an American CEO trying to balance out, you know, what to put in China, what to put in India, what to put elsewhere. Uh, I think it's going to be a real challenge. Tom, um, it, it's been great talking to you about this. We'd love to have you back. We're out of time today, but uh, appreciate your thoughts and what you've seen in that country. I, just very quickly, you had a hard time getting people to talk to you in China, even Starbucks baristas. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, the country, again, that's part of the U-turn, Becky. There was uh, 10 years ago, you could go to China and and, and see you know, a, a lot of people and, and some would talk. It's harder and harder now. Um, you know, China is getting more closed. There's just no two ways about it. Thank you, Tom. And that's the pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and follow Squawk Pod wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much.